0: This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day-to-day, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge, and we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're
1: doing, please subscribe, like the episode, and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi guys, Luke and Sarge here and welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Luke, who are we speaking with today?
0: Sarge, today we're speaking with Laura Gollant, who is a senior consultant working at the PwC office in Melbourne in the corporate and global tax team. Laura began her professional career during year 12 as a participant in PwC's cadetship program. Laura then went on to complete a Bachelor of Commerce at the University of Melbourne, majoring in accounting and management whilst working for PwC four days a week. Laura spent the final year of her degree working for a local accounting firm before heading off to Los Angeles in the US to complete her final semester of university on exchange at the University of Southern California. Laura returned to PwC in Melbourne full-time in 2018. Since then, Laura has completed her Chartered Accountants Qualification and a six months to comment to the World Bank Group, working as an Operations Analyst within the Paying Taxes Indicator uh, of the Doing Business Function. Through her career date, Laura has collaborated with over 65 countries across six continents. Laura, it is good to have such a worldly person on today. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks, guys. Happy to be here.
0: Well, uh, let's jump straight into it. Uh, If you've listened to a few of the episodes, which by the sounds of it you have, which is great, you'll know that we like to get into what guests are doing in their day-to-day roles to start off with. So why don't you take us through what a senior consultant in the tax team at PwC is doing day-to-day?
2: Sure, no problem. Um, So probably one of the things I love about PwC and my role in tax is that it is so diverse. Um, So when I mentioned that I'm in the corporate and global tax team, the list is global basically means international tax, so more of your cross-border stuff. And corporate tax is basically your big companies. So sort of your ASX 200, 500. Um, so in a day-to-day, I guess I'd probably split my role into three main parts. So the first is tax compliance. It's actually helping our clients do their corporate income tax returns or other sort of Excel calculations that we might need. Um, the second would be advisory work. So sort of consulting, um, helping them write analysis on sort of tough tax positions, making sure that they have everything documented, advising on, on sort of any difficult or new things that they face in their sort of day-to-day business. And the third would be transactions, which is basically um, you know, cross-border transactions or domestic. So when our client is either buying or selling a part of their business. Um, so on any given day, I could have you know eight clients that I'm working on, numerous partners and any sorts of these three pieces of work. And depending on the season as well, so with corporate tax, we we'll normally have quite busy um December and I guess July periods. So that might be more compliance heavy because that's when our clients are sort of turning in their corporate income tax returns. And the rest of the year, a bit of everything. And especially, you know, if you're working on the cross-border stuff, different time zones. So it can be all over the place, but I love that.
0: No, definitely. It sounds super interesting. And I think the, the thing that I uh, kind of fascinates me about tax a little bit is that particularly for, for kids that are looking in, or students that are looking to get into the, the cadetship programs and what the big four, you, they will notice that PwC has a legal function as well, or like it's own kind of pseudo law firm as well. It would seem that if you're in the tax team, you're kind of touching on the, the finance side of things and in the Excel um, calculations and whatnot, but then you're also as you say, writing the opinions and, and giving advice on that. Um, do you want to talk to what it's like to kind of chop and change that, that thinking when you're, you're putting your lawyer hat on and, or you, you know, you know, your legal hat on and then you're putting your finance hat on as well?
2: Yeah, perfect. You've, um, you've hit that spot on. So I find tax really interesting because we're probably half-half lawyers and I guess accountants. And if you're lucky, you're sort of a bit of both. You've done commerce and an accounting major and you've done law degree as well. So me coming from an accounting background, I was quite surprised, I guess, when I started working and there were these huge volumes of legislation of tax law that I was expected to read. And, you know, I'd done my core um, law subjects at university. So to get your chartered accountant's qualification, you have to do, I think, tax law, business law, corporate law off the top of my head. But past that, like I'd never really done a lot of cases or where to research things. So I sort of felt, I guess, a bit intimidated at the start doing the law side of things, Um, but everyone's super helpful and you do your induction training and pretty early, I think you work out that if you're willing to work hard and sort of work it out and definitely use your peers as well. So I would lean on my other, I guess, graduates who came from a law background to ask what resources, where do I go to find this? And then you kind of pick it up. But I guess I sort of love it because say, I guess the end result, if we're talking about doing a a corporate income tax return, for example, to do that standalone piece of work, you have to understand everything that's gone on during the business year for your client, as well as the tax reflex of those transactions. So it's not, a, not just a numbers thing, which I think I really enjoy. Even though I come from an accounting background, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a numbers person. I'm more about interpreting those numbers. So I really enjoy that, um, that contrast.
1: Laura, well, you touched on before that, uh, or in the three things that you do in your day, the second thing was dealing with uncertain tax positions. Isn't tax black and white?
2: You're really trying to get under my skin there, Sarge. Um, (laughs) No, I'd definitely say it's a lot of grey area. So tax is constantly evolving. You know, we talk about the first tax acts, which were published in 1936. And since then, there's additions, there's revisions, and tax obviously also has to keep up with the growing world. So a big thing at the moment would be, you know, technology and a lot of those sort of um, cross-border companies. So you think of your Googles, your Facebook. Tax is trying to keep up with all of that. So, you know, how do we tax these companies? How do we deal with the online sector? Um, so it's a constantly evolving space and because it is always evolving, there's different areas and different interpretations along
1: the way. And what, what types of things are you referencing to, to either stay up to date with these different changes or to, to understand what the commissioner is doing when, when he chooses to change the tax laws or the interpretations of them?
2: So I guess to explain it from the starting point, you'd probably start with say budget night. So everyone in tax gets really excited about budget night. We normally order in pizza and sit around and talk through the new announcements. So budget night would give you sort of, I guess, an initial impression of where things are going, what the government's trying to do policy wise. And then from there, you'd probably head into draft legislation. So we'll commonly read bills that are released by the parliament and see what they're sort of thinking. And, um, as I guess people with a law background would be familiar with just because it's in the bill doesn't mean, doesn't mean that it makes it to the final act. So often we'll see laws that are released and then, um, people can write in and comment on them, which is firms such as PwC will commonly do. And we'll say, you know, we think this could be worded better, or there's gaps here, here, and here, and then finally we'll get the finalized law. So that's where there's a huge opportunity, especially for, I guess, new starters and graduates is that because there's constantly new law being released. You can be just on top of that as anyone else in the firm can because it's new law. So getting across those new pieces is really important role of, I guess, someone who's new and new to the business. Um, then I guess in terms of other areas for interpretation, you'd have your precedents. So what's happened in the past, past court decisions, past advice that you've given to other clients, things that you've seen, and then just practical experience. So someone is a new starter. I've been working for six years now you multiply that by three or four times, you're getting to some of the level that, you know, the real partners and I guess the most knowledgeable sources will have in the tax world. So combining those three sources would probably be my, my starting point and <laughs> trying to do that as best as you can with sometimes, you know, limited time.
0: Laura, I think you touched on a good point there for anyone getting into professional services, be that law or accounting or finance or whatever they're getting into it. It's a really good way of learning about what firms are really thinking about when put in context of what you just said with say budget night. So when, when the budget happens or say if you're focused on corporate law or, or corporate finance or whatever, if ASIC releases a new um, stance on something, And then they will uh, go to market and ask for basically feedback from the main firms that will play in that space. All of this stuff is public. So I I didn't realize this until kind of, you know, 18 months ago, which is a bit embarrassing. But what I'm getting to is that if you can think about, okay, I want to learn about this, say, corporate finance space, you can find out who the main players are, so say ASIC, and then go into the main kind of banks or or, um, advisors and then look at what they're saying about, say, proposed legislation or proposed changes. And you can really understand... or hopefully try to understand what the regulators are trying to do and then what the professional services firms are kind of responding to and and what they're saying their clients are focused on. Um, And I I really found that a good way to kind of understand the whole environment rather than just the textbook and rather than just the legislation. So to the extent that you're interested, um, I think that's a good way of going about it.
2: And I think that's a super relevant point you've raised in terms of going from the holistic picture um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind, I find tax law really hard. I still do, you know, trying to read some of those provisions. I just go in circles with double negatives and contradicting and you're reading one book and then it refers you to the other tax volume. It's, it's really hard sometimes to get across. So I completely agree with taking that step back sometimes and overall thinking, well, what is this specific section trying to achieve? And looking at other, you know, briefing packs, government releases, um, you know, commentary notes that you can find on CCH and other sources find out the overall what it's trying to do and then you can delve into the law with that sort of overall understanding. Um, I find that that's still the way that I approach reviewing tax law
0: today. And particularly for students at uni, I think one thing you don't really understand is that your access to all of this stuff is basically um, infinite compared to when you get to a into, into a firm because your uni pays for all of the databases and stuff. So, so really start to use them if, if you want to learn some more.
1: I probably
2: shouldn't say this, but when I was a trainee at PwC, I used to give my uni login for the law resources to the whole team. So that's really saying how important those resources you have at university are and definitely getting abreast of those while you have the time at university is really important so that, you know, when you hit the ground running day one and someone asks you to find a specific case, you know where to start. Whereas I think, you know, me personally, I was probably playing catch up a little bit. So getting ahead of that can be really useful.
1: Uh, I think that using, using all the available resources underscores how, Grey taxis to come back to my my loaded question for about whether it's black or white because it is it is all interpretation and the more uh, opinions you have and the, the the wider net you can cast when you're trying to understand something probably the more uh, rounded or well grounded opinion or view you'll have.
2: Yeah, definitely, and I think one of my favourite areas to work on is actually um, public and private ruling requests to the ATO. So what will happen is we'll sometimes have a client who's doing a transaction or you know something as basic as wants to pay a dividend, and they're not sure how much they can distribute and what that will look like, the type of distribution. Um, they can then come to us and ask, well, we want to make sure we're, that we're correct on this before we obviously go and pay all our shareholders. Can you please write a ruling request to the ATO to get sign-off on our tax position? And that's something that I've you know loved working on. And I'll actually be Sitting there in the office, writing these ruling requests to the ATO on behalf of an ASX, you know, top 50 client, and that's just really interesting because it brings together, I guess, commercial practical experience and you know, really technical arguments on what that right number should be, and to ultimately see that then distributed to shareholders. I really enjoy that sort of practical experience where I'm then seeing, you know, your mum and dad shareholders receiving a dividend that I felt a part of in some small way. So I really love the exposure and that ability to sort of see an outcome occur in the real world, that tangibility that tax can sometimes present.
0: Yeah. Someone spoke about that at, at work as well. It's like you see an ASX announcement or whatever, just saying it's a simple line, yeah, where we're um, announcing dividend of whatever, 80, 80 cents. And you know that oh, in that number, I I did that. <laughs> like I, I helped with that. It's cool. Um. With, with that, Lloyd, do you want to go into a bit more detail? You know, obviously not referencing clients or whatever, but what other kinds of, requests would you be getting from clients in terms of, hey, uh we need we we, we want to do X and we want to come to PwC because they can help us do Y. What would you actually be doing?
2: Yeah. So I think a whole heap of range of stuff. Um common examples, I guess, normally I think what's most important to say is it starts from a commercial driver. So there's a real need in the business for a result to occur. So say for example, we've got a loan expiring soon, we want to refinance this loan. And I guess when you initially hear that, you're probably thinking, oh, well, you just go to the bank. Like, what's that got to do with tax? But the way that you can make things up and, I guess, predetermine the tax reflex is really important. And when you're talking about companies of such a grand size that are cross-border, they need to be managing all of their Australian tax obligations appropriately. So things like um, thin capitalization, which basically is the level of debt that you can have in Australia, they need to be aware of all of these things before they just go and take out that new loan.
0: Do you want to just touch on what cross-border means? Because bearing in mind that we're probably speaking to some students in high school as well, um, might not have gone through a commerce degree or whatnot yet.
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, So cross-border just basically means operating across different borders. So operating between Australia and New Zealand, Australia and other countries. And I guess while we're sort of on the definition stage, there's probably two other terms that I'll use, which are inbound and outbound that you hear commonly in the transaction world. So inbound is when we've got a foreign company investing into Australia or something coming into our country and outbound is the reverse. So when we're talking about our multinational organizations, we're doing a lot of cross-border transactions between the rest of the world, between their subsidiaries, their parent companies, which is a level above, or their subsidiaries, ones below. And those can be inbound, outbound. So there's a lot to think about obviously, and that also changes the type of advice that you're giving because when you're dealing with say a company that could have a huge um, multinational presence, its Australian entity could be quite small. It's very different to when you're dealing with an Australian company that you know has a huge tax team in Australia, but just wants to invest a little bit overseas. So adjusting what you're saying, and I guess using language that is understandable for all users is really important. You've got to match your commercial purpose to what your client actually needs.
1: And just to come back to that cross-border example, why is it important that uh, the, the both sides of the the different countries understand what the different tax reflexes are? Like what's the, what's the key driver?
2: Yeah, definitely. I'd say key driver is just basically your reporting obligations in each country. So depending on what you're doing in a certain country and the presence that you have in that country will trigger different reporting obligations. So the different types of, you know, corporate income tax returns you need to lodge or, even, um, just, you know, letters or announcements to the tax authorities so saying that you've purchased a new company. And there's often quite stringent, um, timeframes around these things. So, you know, if you acquire a new entity, you might have to send a letter to the ATO within 28 days, these types of rules. And when you're a multinational organization, you have to be really acutely aware of all of your obligations in different countries, I guess, because or else you could potentially phase, you know, fines, um, backlash. You just don't want to miss your obligations. It's not a good look, especially when you've got, I guess, the finances to put towards these issues. It's really important that you maintain and keep your tax all under
0: control. I can certainly see some students kind of eyes light up when they hear cross-border and you know international global global companies and, and whatnot. And I think that that's a we, we do we do talk about the benefits and, and pros and cons of going into say a, a massive uh, global financial services firm or, you know, law firm or whatever it might be as opposed to say your local boutique and there's pros and cons of both, I think, but a major con of going, sorry, a pro of going to one of these big places is that you, you probably like the clients that come to these places are your global kind of companies and and your, um, your, your companies that have presences in, in other countries. So you will get that kind of international flavor a lot more. Um, and not only from the clients as well, but I would assume that, you know, if a client comes to PwC and says, we've got subsidiaries in 10 different countries, then I would imagine that PwC works with, their offices in those kind of 10 different countries as well. So you can get a feel of working in a global team too.
2: Yeah. So I actually did count. When was it? When I was applying for the world bank group role, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Um, but I'd worked for 27 foreign PwC offices in my, I guess my four years or so at PwC at that stage.
1: Is that a record? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm, I don't think it would be. I mean, who knows? I did have a lot of transaction experience, which helps, but, We'll have to see. I'll get back to you on that one. Um, Does that
1: that mean you speak 27 different languages?
2: uh, I wish. (laughs) I I wish I did.
0: Well, Um, tax is one. (laughs) Yeah, tax
2: is its unique one in itself. Um, But I guess getting back to that point, I think having what PwC often calls um, that global acumen or the cultural competence is really, really important. So basic examples when you're working in a cross-border context is that some of the rest of the world operates on a uh, Friday, Saturday is your weekend. So, you know, countries in the Middle East, Friday, Saturday is their weekend. So when you're thinking through your week and you want to send them an email, I've gotten caught out a few times where I'll flick something across on a Friday and, you know, the person on the other side actually replies and said, this is our weekend, we'll get back to you on Sunday. Or, you know, public holidays, like little things just to be aware of that really matter when you're shooting emails across to the whole rest of the world that sometimes you don't tune your mind to. You know, examples like Thanksgiving in America, if you're trying to get something done on that weekend, it's probably not going to come very easily. So I guess a starting tip, if you're ever working in these sort of um, contexts is making sure you just have a little Google. So if you're about to shoot an email to the Middle East, check, is it a working day there? Is it a public holiday? You know, Is it Chinese New Year? Are there things that I should be aware about that will change how the tone of my email is? And you know, throwing in something nice like happy Chinese New Year never does any harm
0: might have to uh, send this podcast around to some people that I, I was working on, on a deal yesterday. They weren't quite aware of the grand final public holiday in uh, Victoria <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> um, exactly.
2: And when you're on the receiving end, you know, you do you do really appreciate it and it helps build those personal relationships when people do take notice.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, Laura, let's bounce back to your, I guess, educational or education career. Um, And you did your Bachelor of Commerce at at Uni Melbourne. Uh, Do you want to walk us through your decision-making to get into that course, one? And then two, I want to understand or hear about your experience in terms of picking like your major and, and where you... Um, thought that you would be going afterwards because I understand that, you know, to do things like get your chartered accountancy, you need to have done certain subjects at at uni, for example, and that's not often spoken about when you're coming out of year 12. Do you want to kind of talk to that process as well?
2: Yeah, definitely. Lots to unpack there. Um, I guess I'll start with the decision of where to study. Um, So I was successful in receiving or getting into the PwC cadetship program in year 12, um, which meant at the time, I'm not sure if it's changed but you had to study at RMIT in Melbourne or Monash. Um, when I was making the decision, I thought, well, Melbourne's in the city, work's going to be in the city. It sort of makes sense to be in the same place in case I need to duck to classes after work or can't get my timetable right. That's probably going to be really flexible. Um, and that for me then meant that to get clearly into Melbourne commerce, you needed an ATAR of 95. Um, this is probably a little one for your 12 listeners, but I was really into visualization at that point in time. I thought, 95 would be a pretty big ask. Um, so I actually wrote 95 down on um, Post-it notes, um, cut out pieces of cardboard, everything, and stuck them all over my room and to my parents just made a little bit around the house as well because I thought that if I constantly looked at that number, then I'd strive towards and land on it somehow. So a little bit of a quirk, but that's something I did. Um, got the score that I needed, got into Melbourne, And I thought, well, that will work work great for work. Um, For me, it was actually pretty hard geographically. So at the time I was living down in Bayside with my parents and for me to get to the University of Melbourne was an hour 15. So um, that was quite a bit of travel, especially when I had friends going to Monash Clayton down this way, which is, you know, half an hour in the car and their tracksuit pants and I was on the train. So I guess at the start that was a little bit of a challenge, Um, but I was really, really glad with my decision And I guess turning to your second question, when I thought, what am I going to study? I had to study accounting for the cadetship program. So that was my starting point. And then I remember looking at all the different subjects they had and they had, you know, everything under the sun at Melbourne. I think there's still an African drumming course you can do and wine tasting and all these great things. And I thought, oh, that's going to be fantastic. I'm going to do so many exciting, cool, fun subjects. And then I found this page that Uni Melbourne had, which said, if you want to be a chartered accountant, you have to do these subjects. And quite literally it filled up my whole timetable. So you have to do the three law subjects, which I touched on briefly prior had to do an accounting major and lots of other, um, you know, your core economic subjects, quantitative methods, lots of core subjects at the university of Melbourne. Um, so that really filled my timetable, which I think initially I was quite surprised by, um, And then quite early on in my study, I'd say basically towards the end of my first year, I made the decision that I would really love to do an exchange program. Um, That was a big thing for me to try and get under the belt. And once I decided that, um, it's a lot easier to do exchange when you're doing your bread subjects or I guess for people who don't know what that is, um, your non-core major subjects. So to finish basically to finish my majors before I went overseas. So I knew I'd have to finish accounting and if I wanted to do a second major, that would have to be done before I went on my exchange program. And that's that's not a hard and fast rule, but it's a lot easier to get your credit for your majors in Australia and sometimes to get them recognized overseas.
1: Laura, what came first? Your, your interest in studying commerce and accounting at Melbourne or doing a cadet program?
2: Uh, I would... To to be quite honest, when I was in year 12, I was looking at a commerce archaeology double degree at Monash University. Believe it or not, it did exist. I don't know if it still exists. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought that would be awesome. Um, And then once I landed the cadetship opportunity, I I really did want that. So I thought, for me, I'm someone that um, loves working and loves getting amongst it. So that would give me an opportunity to sort of start my career perhaps earlier than most while also um, earning some good buck at the same time. So I'd probably say they they basically went hand in hand. And then once I got the cadetship opportunity, um, it made sense just to do a single degree because of the fact that I'd have to do part-time study at some points in time. Um, so trying to fit a double degree just wouldn't make sense. Mm. So then it was, yeah, to go to the University of Melbourne and do a single degree.
1: And what was balancing what was balancing that like, having to go into PwC and work four days a week and also be doing all your study at Melbourne Uni as well.
2: I think it taught me amazing time management and sort of balancing conflicting priority skills. Um, I also think something that I'm big on and workplaces seem to be big on is bringing your authentic self to work. And that sounds, I mean, that's challenging still at our age now and I'm 24, but let alone facing that I was 18 years old when I started at PwC. So, you, you, I guess you, you're a bit naive is the wrong word, but you don't have those barriers up in terms of professional skills at that point in time. You know, you are just kind of what you're like and you're trying to learn and you're really enthusiastic. And I think that was actually a great way to start because it, it made me build really deep interpersonal relationships with my team. And there'd be some weeks. I mean, I was studying and working. You're, you're running around like crazy that I'd be seeing the PwC team more than I'd seen my own family. So I really think it was a nice way to kind of grow up professionally and also personally. And I, I would lean on the team to, you know, ask basic questions, talk about my friends or other little, little problems on my mind, but it was a tough balancing act. And I'd say at times, um, you know, it did feel a little bit, not, not sinking, but you're swimming against the current, trying to make sure you get everything done. And I think I had a great support network in um, my friends that I was at university with, and we try and do the same subjects. And sometimes they'd shoot me a text and go, you know, you know, there's a midterm on next week, or did you see the assignment just got dropped online? And then it was just being really productive with the time I had. So i I would map out my week and I'd know, okay, um, I've got an assignment due Sunday night. I'm going to do it all day Saturday and I'm giving myself Saturday. And then, you know, I might go to have a drink with friends on Saturday night. Sunday's my off day. So I'd sit down, start my work Saturday and know that this was it. I I had to get it done. I think being able to sort of produce like that and make sure that you keep, keep yourself accountable. Like I knew that if I didn't hand something in or I wasn't on top of something, I was the only person to blame for that. So keeping yourself accountable and making sure that I was, I guess, well prepared and knew what was coming up, mapped out my diary and balanced my time accordingly.
0: Laura, you touched on the fact that having all of these things going on at such a a young age is awesome for your professional development. And obviously you're working in a professional environment there. So that kind of goes hand in hand. Do you want to talk a bit about what students can be doing to, I guess, work on those professional skills in a kind of non-professional environment? And by that, I mean, what kind of part-time jobs are um, kind of good for for molding those skills? And I would imagine the answer is kind of all of them, but do you want to talk to your um, perspective on that?
2: Yeah, so this is something I'm I'm really big about, and that's going and getting work experience. And that doesn't mean in a professional context always. Of course, that's nice, but you know, there's there's not a guarantee in your first year of uni you're going to be able to go out and get internships in professional service firms. Uh, so for me, all throughout school and in my first year of university, before I started at PwC, I worked in hospitality, and that did amazing things to my confidence, my ability to deal with, I guess, people, make small talk, and also deal with. I guess, stressful environments, you know, when you're waitressing and you've got a thousand things going on and then a customer's complaining about something. But those really helped me build, I guess, my confidence and how to manage people. And at the end of the day, in a lot of firms, what you'll be doing on a day-to-day is just working in teams, trying to operate efficiently in teams, you're meeting clients. So skills that might seem, I guess, you know, more related to the hospitality sector are actually so important in your day-to-day professional career. So my advice to all students and i guess university students as well is go work in those other jobs whether it's hospitality bar work um you know whatever it wants to be refereeing uh, sorry refereeing doing sports make sure that you get out there and get just any experience under your belt because it'll put you in such a better stead and um employers often look really well into it as well so when you go into your first job interviews they want to know what you've been doing and having that sort of work experience is really helpful it doesn't have to be in a professional context
0: I've got two things on that. we were actually speaking to someone, um, Anthony England from Affinda. We released this episode kind of last week and he was talking about he is now on the other side of things in terms of doing some recruitment. And he was like, I go straight to uh, what people to do kind of outside of, you know, their professional work. Cause I want to know that I'm hiring a person and not a robot and can actually have some real world experience. So I think that's super important. And, and to your point about getting any work experience, it's, it's almost more beneficial in a way to get a job at say a small business or a family run business or whatever, because you can have way more leeway to make the role kind of whatever you want. Or if you you want to work on X, Y, and Z skills in a cafe, you kind of can like that might be taking over the rostering or um, ordering the stock or whatever it might be. If you're keen to get involved, the likelihood of the boss saying yes, as opposed to say at a massive professional services firm is, is way higher. I, I think so. There's really good opportunities there. Um, definitely. Um, let's move forward a little bit. I think the, the main thing that I was really interested in when I saw your profile was the the secondment at the world bank. Do you want to talk a, a bit about what the world bank is and kind of what you were doing there? And then I think a good flow on from that would be what a secondment is and how you were able to, to, um, work that in through your PwC career.
2: Sure. So the world bank is a multinational organization that's based in DC, Washington, DC, Um, It was set up post-World War II to basically deal with refinancing and rebuilding Europe. Um, Today it's involved in a whole heap of different projects across the world, sort of financing that's given to different types of economies. Um, It also does a lot of research, which is what I was involved in. So the Doing Business is a publication that people can find online and it's also an index. And what it does is ranks 190 economies across the world in terms of their ease of doing business. So the ease of doing business is made up of 12 different sub indicators that basically follows the uh, life cycle of a business. So from starting a business, um, getting electricity, registering property, to eventually paying taxes and finally resolving insolvency. So the doing business index basically works by working with local contributors across the world. uh, And then it has analysts, which is what I was doing, who reaches out and basically independently scores how easy it is to do business and do the different sub indicators in each of the countries. And then that index comes together and is published annually.
1: What were the key factors that you were focusing on in terms of assessing how easy it is for a country to do business or a business to do business in a country?
2: Yeah, sure. So I'll talk to s- taxes specifically, given that's what I was involved with, but we basically have four sub components in taxes. The first is your total tax and contribution rate, which is basically how, what's that tax percentage of profits that the company would have to pay? The second is the time to comply with taxes. So, how long does it take the standardized company to actually lodge and meet all of their obligations? The third is the number of payments. And we have some rules. So, if there's online systems in use, you'll only record one payment. So, how many different payments does that company have to make? And the fourth is post filing. So, how, uh, I guess, easy and can you obtain a GST cash refund or a corporate income tax correction. So, when you're hearing those things, it sounds like a lot of terms, but it's really just how easy is it for that company to comply with all of their obligations? And those different subcomponents are trying to pick up and test those different areas. But, you know, thinking about it practically and logically, um, if it's taking you more time to comply, you know, we have some economies where it's above a thousand hours to comply with taxes, that's going to be perhaps quite a more difficult system to comply with compared to if it's less time, it's showing that the company can sort of meet its obligations easier.
1: Well, it costs more money and it takes more time, which, which no, one, no one's really interested in.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I might touch on, I guess, what my role specifically was in that team. Um, and working as an analyst, I was responsible for my set of countries around the world. And every year, the team would send out these standardized surveys asking with specific parameters around the case study company and asking, well, how long would it take to lodge your taxes? Are there any new taxes we need to be aware of? We then receive these surveys back and I'd review the surveys and see if there was any changes or anything that I should be aware of. Um, Sounds easier said than done, perhaps. So examples could be I'd be dealing with, say, um, a country in Europe or Africa and they've released a new tax law. So there's lots of different changes I need to be aware of. And I was quite literally, you know, sometimes using Google Translate and looking at their foreign law to try and understand the reflex for our data. And then we'd have, you know, follow-up correspondence with contributors to, of course, make sure that we understood the law correctly and we were interpreting things correctly. Um, We'd have teleconferences with governments. So we have the Australian Tax Office with Australia I'd be working with the tax governments around the world, um, you know, having teleconferences, understanding what they were trying to do in their tax policy, and then ultimately sort of finalising the data that will go into the future and upcoming um, doing business 2021 report.
0: So, so a lot there. Yeah, there's so much, and I think that it's so interesting, particularly for people that are you know, like you were talking about before. You're interested in working for those um, big multinational corporations, and now you kind of see how they're kind of assessed from a from a regulator's point, well, not a regulator, but a, a body's point of view. I think it's super interesting. Do you want to talk a bit about um, the, I guess, onboarding process and how it was being a secondee in the current climate? And obviously, we're we recording back end of twenty twenty, middle of COVID. You um, was from your living room. Do you want to talk about how what that was like coming into a new team and the challenges there?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so when I initially got accepted into this opportunity, I was flying to Washington to complete the secondment, which was going to be six months. Um, so this was all happening around March and it was, it was quite a long interview process. So I started applying back in December. Um, so multiple December, 2019. So multiple rounds of interviews, um, you know, wait periods. There was so I guess some, as some context, this opportunity is offered to one senior consultant at PwC globally each year. Um, so you can imagine there's quite a few people applying. Um, when I eventually got it, I was organizing my flights to fly over to DC. Um, you know, I'd, I'd moved back home. So I was living out in a share house, moved back home, um, was sorting out all my belongings, making sure I had my visa ready, doing all of that and COVID struck. So I was meant to fly out the following week when COVID started looking um, quite serious and it was decided best that I not come over. Um, the team in the US had started working from home. Everyone was on lockdown. wasn't really a time to be going anywhere. Um, so starting what was meant to be a job, you know, in person, doing it from home, provides a whole heap of difficulties, especially when you consider that I was performing the role from a different time zone to everyone based in DC. But this experience that I'm about to talk about, even though it's, you know, what I went through, this is probably going to be quite similar to everyone who's starting their, um, you know, graduate programs and internships in the coming months in Australia also. Um, So, I guess what I did is put out my laptop. I had a call with tech and they were quite literally telling me what to type in and what links to follow to try and get remote access to everything. Um, Sorting out passwords. And then day one, I just logged on and I had a calendar invite from my boss and we jumped on a zoom and that was how we met and got the ball rolling. So I did three days of intense um, induction training from home remotely with various members of the team. Um, And then just basically got started. So I think, It's it's going to always be a different challenge when we're normally used to meeting people face to face and you can sort of gauge their reactions and it's a lot easier um, I guess to sort of pick up their mood than sometimes it is when you're working remotely just across Zoom and other measures. Um, So that was unique and I think the way that I probably dealt with that was just in terms of communication. And I was dealing with a team as well where um, I was the only person in the team where English was my first language, as far as I'm aware. Um, So. Making sure that I was really, really clear on the questions that I had, timelines, what had to be done. Um, you know, if I wasn't understanding something, I never assumed that that I would be able to go away and work it out. I sort of drove that point into the ground going, you know, I really apologize. Can you just explain it to me again? Um, so I think clear communication is absolutely key because you're not going to have any of those. Um, I guess when you're in the office, you know, you can meet people in a lift, you can bump into someone in the kitchen. You, you
1: lose all those little cues that you would otherwise exactly. get. Exactly.
2: All the little bits and pieces that you can pick up along the way, or you know, you're struggling, you can just turn around and ask someone. You don't have those opportunities as easily remotely. It's not that they're not there. Of course, you can always, you know, text someone or shoot a message, but you can't just turn around and ask them and sometimes get that immediate feedback. So I think you have to be so clear in your communication and also really well organized. So make sure, you know, if something's due on the Friday, have a look at it on the Monday to make sure you understand everything that you've been asked to do. If you realize that, you know, your manager hasn't sent the attachment that you need or that you don't have access to the law resources that you're going to need, get all of that organized at the start so that you're ready to go when you do the work, because it's not as easy to just pick up things along the way when you're working remotely, I can find.
0: Oh, it sounds like their skills that you were developing, you know, back when you were 18, going through the the cadetship program and balancing uni and work and everything as well. So um, it certainly sounds like a skill set that people can start to develop. You know now, whenever they're listening to it, and and it will pay dividends down the track. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a point there because we're something that we've spoken about a couple of times on the show already is the kind of um potential benefit of COVID or the kind of the the um the eventuating environment from COVID is that companies, you know, you don't have to be in the city to go and work for their company, and that's great from a job perspective, but also just from a work experience perspective or an internship perspective, like you can. I would imagine you can probably kind of email any company now and say, Hey, I've got an internet connection. Um, Can I do some work for you? So it's something to keep in mind, not for people that are just getting onboarded into the graduate programs and whatever, but um, you know, to the extent that you're trying to get, you know, um, experiencing companies all around the world, if you want to, it's something to keep in mind as well.
2: Definitely. And I think, you know, having a positive attitude around it all is just so important. Like when I initially started this comment from home, I was admittedly a little bit concerned about how we would be able to do it and, you know, working across different time zones. And I was a little bit anxious about the whole way of doing things. And to be completely honest, it was seamless in the end. My team at the World Bank were amazing in facilitating the arrangement. PwC support was great from home as well. Um, so I think really stay open-minded about it, um, even though it might not be how we've typically worked, it's definitely going to be the way of the future. So be enthusiastic, be um, use strong communication skills, put a smile on your face when you're jumping on Zoom calls. It's really the basics, but it pays off.
1: Right, what advice would you have for students who do have to uh, face that challenge of doing an internship or working remotely for the first time when they haven't met their team? Like how can they best, particularly from like a non-technical or like a non output perspective, how can they best like build be a ball with someone through, through a video camera?
2: Yeah, it, it can be a challenge, and I'm not necessarily saying that I, I nailed it either, but I think offer up some information about yourself. Um, there's a definitely a time and place. So if someone's booked in a calendar time with you to discuss a piece of work, it might not be the time to chat about footy scores from the weekend, but definitely pick your moments, and sometimes those might be at, you know the starts or the end of calls and things are winding up, and if someone asks, oh, you know, got a busy day ahead, offer some little things about yourself because – you know, if people don't know sort of what's going on for you and what what your day-to-day looks like, it's really hard to build that rapport. So little things, you know, sliding in comments about your family or, you know, might go for a run, letting people know what your interests are really helps to build that rapport. And even if, you know, the person you're talking with hasn't offered that information up, feel free to actually bring your authentic self to that conversation and put in a few things about your interests and what you like to because it just starts getting that relationship going and gives something to build on.
1: It encourages them to do it too like if you share with them then they might go oh okay well Laura's sharing this with me so now I feel more comfortable sharing this sort of thing with Laura.
2: Yeah yeah definitely um and as I mentioned before but definitely smiling as well as little as it sounds look interested look engaged um the worst thing, and I know that Zoom calls can go for so long sometimes and you're tired or whatever it might be, but try to stay focused. And if that means you know, turning off your additional monitors or putting your phone upside down on the side or in another room, really try and look engaged in the conversation. Put your camera on as much as possible. Um, I think working from home all the time now, the expectation that you have to sit there and be in a shirt just isn't necessarily there. It depends on your work environment you know, don't be afraid that, oh, I've got my workout gear and I just went for a run. I don't want to have my camera on. People will embrace that. So, you know, put your camera on as much as possible, show that you're present, that you're engaged and people will receive that well.
1: Definitely. And lo- looking back, looking back over your journey, which has been pretty, pretty colorful. one. what did, what, um, if anything, would you ch- you change about your trajectory?
2: Um, change. I think, I think that's a tough one. I, I think I'm pretty happy to be honest. I I think I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. Um, you know, I I have worked very hard along the way to try and get as many opportunities that I could. And there's definitely a lot that I missed out on as well. Um, but, you know, I think all in all, I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at at the moment. Um, and I, I guess I probably never would have expected that I would be able to have the opportunities that I have doing the World Bank Group experience was amazing. Um, so I think if I could talk to my younger self a little bit or change something, it'd probably be to have a little bit more belief sometimes, you know, nothing is out of reach unless you make it. So, um, there's never any harm of putting your hand in the ring and really pushing yourself and aiming for the stars and you'll fall on the clouds.
1: And and one, one last one, then what, what, um, looking back at your journey, what, what things can students really take away from from you or what What are some of the things that you've learned that you think uh, that students should hold really dear as they move forward, whether that be trying to choose what they do next year in terms of university study or potentially trying to find a job next year?
2: Sure. So I might say, I think I've got three points on this. So the first that I'd say, um, especially if you're interested in working in a multinational context is having a second language is really, really beneficial. Um, and complete transparency. I don't at this stage. So I did French until, well, until and including in year 12, but dropped it when I got to university. Um, that's one thing that I'd change or tell my younger self to do is keep that language to a working proficiency, which doesn't mean you have to be fluent. Um, but definitely keep it there. And I'm now back on Duolingo trying to get my language skills up. So if possible, think about doing a language on the side, because that's something that will benefit you hugely. Um, the second is be vocal. And I think this has been a reoccurring theme on some of your podcasts, but people will never find you arrogant as long as it's done in the right way for expressing your wants and desires. And others generally want to help you. you. know, People want to help, but the only way they can do that is if they know what you want to do and what you're interested in. So part of how the World Bank Group experience came about was that I'd been very vocal with my team at PwC in expressing that I wanted to work overseas at some point in time you know, would love to do a common opportunity or would love to go get that exposure in an overseas environment. So then when the partners at the firm saw this opportunity arise in the back of their head, they thought, oh, that's something that Laura would be interested in. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. But if I hadn't have been so vocal in expressing, I guess, what I wanted and what I wanted to do, that opportunity might not have come about. So definitely tell as many people as you can, you know, what your interests are, what you're trying to achieve, um, and they'll definitely get on board with that and try and help you where possible. Um, and I think the third thing that I would say is, um, you know, s- slow down and you you don't necessarily have to have anything figured out. Um, I'm a big person. I always have five-year plans, three-year plans. My boss at PwC laughs because we'll sit down for our catch-ups and he goes, oh, you know, what's your new plan? How have you adjusted it? What's your five-year goals? I'm all about that. But also be flexible, you know. If you're a year 12 student at the moment, I understand it's been a challenging year and the future's probably looking a little bit unclear at this stage. You don't have to have all the answers straight away, but definitely just get the ball rolling. So, you know, enroll in something for university. If you find that you're not liking it at the start, you can always change. You can swap your career preferences. You can work things out. You can listen to podcasts such as this and see what your interests are. So I think, you know, slow down, You can work things out as you go along the way and things are always adaptable and flexible and you are too.
1: Awesome. I think that's awesome advice, Laura, and a great place to leave it. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.